Adelaide's a cafe culture. There's a new kind of cafe that's opening up in Adelaide. It's called a death cafe. Not because they serve cocktails of uh, euthanized sort of drugs or something like this, you can knock yourself off, but a cafe where you can talk about death. Do you talk about death? I come from a family which didn't talk about death at all. Um, you never talked about what happened after you died. Uh, the exception was yesterday, I was on the phone to my dad, whose close friend had died recently, um, even though he's a very healthy man and only two months older than my dad, suddenly dropped dead from a heart attack while he was sitting in his chair at home, not even doing anything strenuous. Um, dad said, at the funeral, the minister, uh, who was also friends with this fellow, had said, we often shared points of view about what happens after you die, although we never agreed. That's the closest my father's ever come to talking about what happens after you die. Do you talk about it? What do you think will happen after you die? I wonder, you could talk about this at home. What, what does happen after you die? People have different views. Essentially, it comes down to four, the first three of which are most common. The first view of death sees death as cyclical, that after we die, we are reborn, not as ourselves, but reincarnated into some other life form. That is the Eastern view of death, um, around at the time of Jesus in both Buddhism and Hinduism. Ultimately, the idea is that the cycle ends at nirvana, which means, not, it's not just the name of the band, it, it, it means that your, your personality and your identity become obliterated, you become one drop in the ocean of nothingness. Encouraging? I don't think so. To many Buddhists and Hindus, it's very bleak, actually. But there it is, that's their view. Death as cyclical. The second view sees death as a brick wall, bam, uh, which when we hit it, stops us dead, it terminates our existence, we are annihilated. Death is the end, the total obliteration of the person except in the memory of loved ones left behind. That view is even more bleak than the cyclical view. A third and more popular view likes to see death as a doorway uh, to pass through, not a wall to stop by, but a doorway you go through. That's where our soul survives and continues on in some other place. That by far is the majority view in Australia, although it might surprise us to learn that it doesn't come so much from the Bible, but from Greek thinking, did you know? Most especially from the Greek philosopher Plato, who spoke of the immortality of the soul. His writings underpin much of Western civilization and thought. The nagging problem with that view is that it doesn't tell us where we go after we die. And we might hope the dead might go to a better place, but in the history of this idea, that is actually a comparatively recent addition. Um, all the ancients thought that after we die, if you hold to this view, the door you go through is to the underworld. And the underworld was not an improvement of here. Um, you might have heard of an ancient Greek poet named Homer who wrote the Iliad, and this is the story of Achilles at Troy and all that sort of stuff. There was a movie with Brad Pitt, you might remember. Okay, so Homer wrote the big, the big um, uh, poem on this where in that poem, the hero, Achilles, said that he'd rather have the lowest positions 
in this life, then hold the greatest position of honour in the underworld. It was not an improvement. It was not a better place. And so no wonder no one wants to talk about death, hey? Um, None of these views promise moving on to a better existence. You might go to a funeral parlour and someone will say, well, you know, Uncle Ted's playing a round of golf in the sky. How do you know? Is that just wishful thinking? Um, It's probably just something said that's vaguely comforting to get people through an awkward moment. This makes death rather despairing. Okay. Uh, I was going to have slides. For some reason, they haven't synced here. But imagine we're seeing a slide of an old guy in a big sort of grey wig. Okay, Voltaire, the French philosopher, he's the father of modern education. He uh, believed in God only distantly. He said, when I die, it is a step into the unknown. Bertrand Russell, okay, another old guy, English guy with a pipe, I want you to imagine him. He was an atheist. He wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. He said, when I die, I believe I'll rot. And then he added, but the thought that I'm wrong terrifies me. Somerset Maugham, another old guy, black and white photo. Okay, he believed in the immortality of the soul. He said for me, death is a hellish experience. All very pessimistic. The good news is that there's a fourth view that comes from faith in Christ and it's hopeful and it's positive. Okay, another photo. Martin Luther King with his wife, okay. His wife, Coretta Scott King, said, they ended my husband's life with one bullet, but not all the bullets in all the arsenals in all the world can end his eternal existence because my husband is with God because of Christ. Okay, another sketch, ancient English. Okay, John Penry, he was actually executed for coming to a Christian meeting in 1596 in Wales because he wasn't an Anglican bad moment in church history, right? Okay. (laughs) The night before he died, he said to his wife, I have been your husband for a season. I will be your brother for eternity. Okay, a photo of of a sort of older Chinese man by the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Okay. Um, His name is John Leung who made a, I know him, he made a bucket load of money in China, in Hong Kong, as a very successful surgeon. John's purpose in life had been to make money. This is what he lived for. For years, he based himself in Hong Kong, and in the 80s, he flew day trips into China to um, do surgery on wealthy clients. He would charge $10,000 a day, and he made bucket loads of money. When I met him, he was at Bible college in my year. I sat down at lunch. I said, tell me your story. I couldn't believe it. I said, well, why are you here at Bible college if you're making all that money? Uh, you know, he said, well, he, he used to make money. Um, oh, sorry, the reason why he was now at Bible college was so that he could go back to China to tell his former patients about Christ who holds the real answers to life. I said, well, what changed you? Massive difference. He said five years earlier, he had witnessed both of the death of both of his parents very quickly, one after the other. His father went first. Now, his goal had been the same as John's, to make as much money as he could in his life. John said he died wealthy but terrified. His mother soon followed. She died completely at peace. The difference was that his mother had died with her trust in Jesus Christ. 
John saw that his mother had a view on death which was very different to the Western or the Eastern view. She saw death not as a cycle, not as a wall, not even as a door. Her view, the fourth view, the Christian view, is that through faith in Jesus Christ, death is abolished. This is the view put forward by Jesus himself. We hear it from Jesus when he speaks of Lazarus' death, not as a death, but as falling asleep, and of Jesus going to wake him up. This did not compute with the disciples, and perhaps it doesn't compute with us either, because Lazarus died, right? He died. He stopped breathing. He was no longer alive, and his sister's Grief was because he died. And yet Jesus sees things differently. And he wants us to believe what he believes. He said it to his disciples. Lazarus is dead. And yet for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there when he first got sick, so that you can believe. Let's work our way through the story. I want to pick it up at verse 17. If you've got your Bibles or on your phones there, John 11, verse 17. Jesus has just arrived outside the township of Bethany where Lazarus had lived. By this time, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Ten days earlier, Martha and her sister had sent a message to Jesus with the news that their brother, Lazarus, the one whom you love, was sick. Now, at the time, the message, the meaning of the message was very clear. Come and heal him. Come, they knew he would, would because he loved them. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It says so in verse 5. Uh, they were friends. They were close friends. And yet, by verse 11, Lazarus has died. And so, hearing that Jesus at last was close by, Martha leaves the house of mourners and she goes to meet Jesus. And then reaching him, Martha unburdens to Jesus all that's been bottled up, the content of her grief, and uses the same words that Mary, her sister, would later herself say, word for word. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here. Do you hear it? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. How do you take those words? Clearly, they're statements of truth. They knew enough of Jesus to know had he been here, Jesus would have healed Lazarus, and he would have. But we wonder, are they statements of accusation as well? (laughs) You might think so because of uh, verse 6. So verse 5, Martha loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Hang on. He loved them, so he stayed where he was. Two days. What? Are the sisters saying, if only Jesus hadn't delayed, if he'd come when he got the message, their brother wouldn't have died, Jesus uh, therefore had Lazarus' death to answer for. Is that what they're saying? I don't think so. Because when Jesus received the message, geography's helpful here, he was a full four days journey away. Not one. He was 150 kilometres away. He was to the north on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee where John had been baptising. Which means even if he set out straight away, by the time he'd arrived, he still would have been two days too late. So Jesus wasn't to blame for Lazarus' death. 
In fact, just to clear the record, the original text makes it quite clear it was because Jesus loved this trio that he delayed his departure. Not in spite of his love, because of it, that he stayed where he was two more days. Uh, the word in verse that begins verse 6, so, is actually a therefore. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, therefore he stayed where he was two more days. So according to what's written, though we don't understand it yet, that delay was somehow a proof of his love. How could that delay be a proof of his love? That's where it's helpful to get some background. Now, in the first century, I am told, the Jews had a belief that the soul of a deceased person stays hovering over the body for a period of three days looking for some chance of reunion. But when, after three days, death really sets in, that's because decomposition sets in then, the deceased is truly deceased, the the soul flies away. (sighs) Ah, right. Now, if that's what's going on here, this may explain things. What Jesus has done is to time his arrival to be four days after Lazarus's death, so that any restoration of Lazarus's life will be properly seen for what it is, not as a resuscitation, but a genuine overthrow of death completely. Jesus' delay was out of love so that Martha and Mary and Lazarus, together with us, might believe in him as the one in whom is life and have life in his name. Okay. So if Martha and Mary don't come in accusation of Jesus, how are we to take their words? Uh, Clearly they're statements of grief. They are the words of two sisters who've lost their brother, who both know that had things been different, if Jesus had only been there when Lazarus was sick, he wouldn't have died. He would be with them right at that moment. They are grieving a loss that they can imagine in different situations should not have been. They are words which we ourselves might some, someday say once. If you had been here, Jesus, the one whom I loved would not have died. Words of grief come through missing someone who was once part of your life but now isn't. And you just feel their absence, pain, the loss. Everyone can understand that. But notice there's a difference between the way in which Martha comes to Jesus and the way in which Mary comes to Jesus. I don't know if you notice this. When Martha hears that Jesus is near, she is up and she is on her way. Mary remains where she is. In other words, there's a grief that propels Martha to come and share and be comforted and there's a grief in Mary which paralyzes her and renders her unable. Grief hits us in different ways. There's no right or wrong. It's not that one had more faith than the other. It's impossible to predict how grief will hit you. But here it's hitting two women in two different ways. Martha. When Martha comes to Jesus, Martha comes in grief, but also hope. She has hope in God, but her hope is largely unclear. Later in the story, when Jesus is standing before the tomb and says, take away the stone, Martha hesitates. Uh, Lord, do you think this is such a good idea? Uh, There's a stench. He's been there for four days. He stinketh. Um, It's an unshaped hope. 
But it's still hope because Martha comes and she says, yes, I'm in grief, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. What's she expecting at this point? We don't know. But she's grasping, she's reaching. She'd seen enough of Jesus to know that something, anything was possible. And there's something very human, I think, in Martha's reaching towards Jesus. When someone you love is facing death, we often cry, God, please do something. I don't know what, just intervene. All right? This is Martha. What does Jesus do? He tells her what he might tell us. Your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection. She's thinking that Jesus is speaking of the Jewish hope, the biblical hope, that God would physically raise his people to life on the day of judgment. It's said in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, for example. She already shared this hope. Her grief wasn't that she was in doubt about where her, husband, her brother would end up. She grieved his physical loss. She missed him. She missed his presence. She missed his life. Death has snatched him from her. It's very similar to that grief that you read of on Easter morning after, with Mary Magdalene, uh, where she mistakes Jesus for the gardener. <laughs> so that when he says, why are you crying? She replies, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. She's grieving him not being there. Okay. And Martha's grief is the same. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I miss him. I miss my brother. And it's to this grief, you see, that Jesus then responds in the key words of promise in verse 25. These are beautiful words. You know, if you've ever wondered, is it worthwhile being a Christian? Listen to this. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he challenges Martha, do you believe this? And she replies, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. Do you see what Jesus has done? So he's taken Martha's rather unshaped hope and focused it now on himself. She believed in the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Okay. Um, you'd be hoping that God would raise your brother from the dead. Well, guess what? It's me who's standing in front of you. I'm it. I'm the answer. I'm the resurrection. He's now to be the locus of her faith and her trust. And if we were to ask why, Jesus tells us that because of who he is, for those who believe in him, death becomes abolished. I want you to hear this. There are two parts. First of all, he says, I am the resurrection which he then explains by saying, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus is promising in himself the physical resurrection back to life of all who have died but believe in him. He's saying again what he said in chapter 5 of John, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Resurrection. This means if we believe in Jesus... Death is not the end of our physical selves. It's not the end of our relationships lived out in the body. But instead, Christ will physically recreate our bodies on the day of resurrection. Capacity for physical recognition, 
physical embrace, physical restoration of relationship. Do you see how wonderful this is? What a great God. What a great saviour. It refutes the idea that death is a doorway to this eternal disembodied existence. Who wants that? What Jesus offers is hope infinitely more solid, more physical, more relational. Why be a Buddhist when you can be a Christian? You know, it's so much better. That's only half of what Jesus says. Because we want to know, well, what happens to us in the meantime, you know, after we die, before that moment of resurrection? Have you ever wondered that? If someone in your family dies and they believe in Jesus, where have they gone? Where are they now? Jesus tells us the second part of what he says when he says, I am the life. This is different to the first part. You might not have thought of this. You might have thought they're just the same. No, they're different. I am the life. He tells us what he means when he promises, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Of course, he knows we're going to stop breathing. What's he saying? He's saying even when our hearts stop beating, if we believe in him, we keep on living. We live in conscious fellowship with Jesus who grants life to the dead. Meaning that if we believe in him now, if we live in him now, we will never die. You're not abolished. Okay? What's abolished is death. Death is abolished. You think, hang on, but we do die, don't we? Our hearts stop beating, our bodies stop working. Yes, but notice, did you notice? Jesus stops speaking of that as death. Instead, he uses different language, the language of sleep. Now, often we're confused about this. By sleep, I don't think Jesus means unconscious because remember what Jesus promised the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It's not today you'll go to sleep and you'll wake up on the day of the resurrection. No, today you'll be in conscious fellowship with me in paradise. I think what's meant by sleep is from the point of view of someone looking at the person who's died with their faith in Christ, looking at them. They look dead but, or asleep, but because according to Jesus they're still living, it's more accurate to say they are asleep. Okay? Now, being asleep changes things for the people who are awake. When someone in the family lies down for a sleep, they're not around, they're out of action for a time, you can't speak to them. So it is with those who sleep in death. They're out of action, they're not around, you can't relate to them for a time. But that doesn't mean that they're dead in the sense of having ceased to exist or having come back in another life form or something like that. Have they gone through a door? Well, in one way, yes, but it's not the door that Plato spoke about. If someone dies believing in Christ, they certainly haven't gone to the realm of the dead, the underworld. But neither is it automatic that their soul was naturally immortal. This is what Plato thought. This is a lie. Okay? Jesus gives life to souls that are dead. Our souls don't naturally have life by themselves. We've all cut ourselves off from God, the life giver, the punishment of that is death, and death in the Bible is spiritual as well as physical. Jesus says it's only those who live and believe in him who will never die. So he says, I'm the resurrection, and he says, I'm the life. In those two statements he, he's saying, he's saying your bodies will live, your souls will live, meaning that when your body dies, well, you're not dead, you're asleep. 
He promised it as true for everyone who believes in him. He asked Martha whether she believed. She said, yes, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ. It all hinges on you. You are the son of God who was to come into the world. And at that point, Martha hurries off to get Mary, her sister, who now comes at Martha's encouragement. And remember, Mary, Mary's grief is different. It paralyzes her more. And now on coming to Jesus, it's more demonstrative. Okay, it's more physical than Martha's. When Mary came to Jesus, what did she do? She fell down at his feet and she was weeping. Okay, face to face with the raw grief of death and how it's so terrible. Jesus' first reaction is to be deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, can I say, that's a polite translation. The word here, embrimomai, means to be enraged, to snort with righteous indignation. You know, It's the word used outside of the Bible to describe the flaring of the nostrils of a horse on a battlefield. You know, This is no minor reaction that's going on in Jesus. He is deeply indignant. At what? Well, partly of the sheer awfulness of death because it rips relationships apart, doesn't it? It destroys what is good. Partly at Mary weeping hopelessly. The reality is the situation isn't hopeless. Nor does she need to weep hopelessly. So Jesus asks to be taken to where Lazarus now lay and then he has his second reaction. He weeps. He weeps with Mary. He weeps with the Jews who are with Mary. He weeps out of love for Lazarus and his sisters at the sheer sorrow and the mess of it all. And yet he arrives at the tomb And there he doesn't just weep because, again, he snorts with righteous indignation. He's deeply disturbed in spirit and trouble. Once more, deeply moved. Same word. Because now, he who boasted of himself being the resurrection and the life, now he confronts death, the death of a friend who matters to him, and you and I matter to him. What's Jesus' attitude towards our death? We see it here. Death is a merciless foe. Face to face with that foe that takes and destroys, the Son of God is angry. And so standing in front of the tomb, Jesus prays to his Father. And then in a loud voice, he tells death where to go. And he tells Lazarus to come out. And then at his word, this powerful word, the same word that Jesus says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live, this this powerful word that spoke the world into existence, this powerful word, suddenly decomposition is reversed, sinews and muscles are re-knit, the breath of life enters this man, and out he comes, out he comes, Um, you know, Take the grave clothes off, let him go. The family, which was in grief, are in grief no longer. Because in the very next chapter, we see the three of them reunited. John 12, this wasn't read, but you can go home and read it. And they are holding a banquet at Jesus' house, sorry, at their house in Jesus' honour. Isn't that wonderful? 
Uh, that is a little picture of the shape of resurrection life. I love it. What will resurrection life look like? What do we have to look forward to come the day of resurrection? Three things. The tears will be ended. Martha and Mary and Lazarus are together once again. They are eating together. More than that, secondly, it will be sharing in a banquet with Christ himself. There is table fellowship. Uh, you know how rich eating around a table can be with people whom you love. It will be like that. But thirdly, the banquet and the fellowship will all be in honour of him who is the resurrection and the life. You know, where honour and thanksgiving are freely expressed to him who died and rose again. Mary takes expensive perfume. She anoints the feet of Jesus. Martha serves and waits on him. That's the shape of life to come. There's no place for death or mourning or crying or pain because in Christ the old order of things has passed away. Death, that age-old enemy, has been abolished once and for all. How? It was this miracle which was the last straw for the authorities. It was the raising of Lazarus which would now set in train the machinery of crucifixion which would wind up with Jesus strung up on the cross for us. Lazarus's life was saved. The cost was Jesus' own life. It's exactly the same with us, isn't it? If we're saved, it's the cost of Jesus' own life. And we remember it. <laughs> we remember it every Easter, don't we? We remember it during communion. Uh, but this is a resurrection story. Um, it's not, our story really isn't about Good Friday. It's about Easter Sunday here, the day when Jesus himself was raised to life from the dead. Of that story and of this story, John, at the end of his gospel, says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe it? And that's the question. That's what we must do. We must respond. We've got to believe. And so I've got to ask you, do you? You say you do, do you? Do you believe what you believe? Jesus' restoration of Lazarus, Jesus' own resurrection from the dead, show us none of the other views about death are true. Which means that all of us have got to be people who believe. Not just people who say we believe, who sh but who shrink in terror, but people who don't shrink. We believe what we believe. That there's no hope without him. But you can't get a greater hope with him. And so, what have we got to do? Well, we've got to do what Martha and Mary did. We've got to let their response be ours. We've got to say, yes, actually, Lord, I believe you are the resurrection. I believe you are the Christ. That by believing, I may have life in your name. Let's pray. Jesus, our Lord, without you, we know that at the end of the day, there is 
only hopelessness, only grief. But with you, there is life and reunion and restoration. Today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10,000th time, we place our trust in you as the resurrection and the life that we may live with life in your name. Amen.